Hello and welcome to Stories from the Ridge, a podcast series of Macaulay School. I'm Steve Hearn, a member of the class of 1974 and Vice President for Advancement at Macaulay. And I'm excited about this edition of Stories from the Ridge, which looks at musical performances at Macaulay over the years. Shortly before Christmas break last year, I sat down with Duke Ritchie and John Marcellus. And we looked back at some historic performances as well as shared some fun stories. So today we we have Dr. Duke Ritchie, who holds the Senator Howard H. Baker Chair of American History at Macaulay. And John Marcellus is with us and he serves as Director of Weekend Activities. And John has played an instrumental role in bringing some great performers to Macaulay. So sit back, relax, laugh, (laughs) enjoy our reflections on music through the years at Macaulay. And we start off by remembering the late great Otis Redding. Here we are. We're gathered tonight to talk about music at Macaulay and music through the years. And I'm happy to be here tonight with a couple of great Macaulay alums, John Marcellus, class of 1985, and uh, Duke Ritchie, class of 1986. And both are on the faculty and staff here at Macaulay. And we have a love for music, a love for Macaulay, and we think we've got some really neat stuff, interesting stuff to share with you about music through the years. Uh, you know, when you think about music venues, you know, you were great places where musical acts uh, come together. You think about maybe recording studios. And I know, Duke, you've been through Memphis and North Alabama. You've been to Stax and Arden Studios. Same. And Sun. Muscle Shoals, right. And, uh, and that just seems natural, but people don't normally think of, of an independent school on the Missionary Ridge being a place where great acts perform, and, uh, and we've seen that. So kind of thinking through that, for the two of you, John and Duke, maybe John start, what, what act comes to mind as maybe the greatest act that, in your, in your opinion, has ever performed here at Macaulay? Well, <clears throat> you know, we had, we've had 20 Winter Sing concerts at Macaulay, starting in 1989 <laughs> and running through 2008, and probably, um, you know, the second to last one when uh, Luke Bryan came to Macaulay. I mean, he had an album that was uh, named Album of the Decade by the Academy of Country Music. He's hosted American Idol. You know, there have been some huge acts that have played at Winterson, but it doesn't get much bigger than that. Anyways, Luke Bryan, I would say it doesn't get much bigger. Yeah, Duke, what about you? Yeah, I mean, today we're recording on December 10th, and, and we were discussing this a minute ago. Today's the 53rd anniversary of, of Otis Redding's death, and I, I was surprised when when we started researching this, and Steve, you showed me some of your things that you had dug up that Otis Redding had played here in 1965. And, uh, you know, he's certainly one of the bigger, I mean, he and Luke Bryan have to be the two biggest, but there are a lot of bands that were sort of big on the college kind of circuit and huge names in the 80s and 90s. John, we got some of those here uh, that we can talk about later. But my favorite band 
that ever played at Macaulay. It was definitely widespread panic. They played <laughs> 1993, uh, and I was long gone by that point, but I remember hearing about it and thinking, holy cow, they got widespread panic. And I guess that was on, was that on the wood floor? Or was that no, that was, that was actually the last of four winter sins that were held in the acoustically unstable Davenport gym. So <laughs> the bands would always criticize, you know, the sound in Davenport gym, and rightly so, because as soon as they would sing one line of a song, it would echo right back at them. Oh, God. Yeah, I guess I would kind of piggyback on your Otis Redding, uh, being yeah. a Macaulay. Back in uh, 1965, the next year, he recorded that great song, Try a Little Tenderness. And uh, that's an amazing song. It was recorded at Stax Records, and it was arranged by Isaac Hayes. So this guy, can you imagine standing in Davenport Gym? Those people had no idea who was standing there and performing in front of them. And then in 67, of course, that was December the 10th, was the year of his death. But before that, he was sitting on the dock of the bay. And the cool thing about that is he wrote half of the lyrics for that in Sausalito, California, when he was sitting on a houseboat. And he wrote the other half in Memphis when he partnered with a guy named Steve Cropper, who was a guitarist oh, yeah. and a music uh, producer who also played with Booker T and the MGs. So it's just an amazing story. He's from Macon, Georgia. Uh, what, a, what a classic act. Otis Redding at that time I mean, he had had radio play and was was well known already by '65, right? Or pretty well known? Yeah, I, mean, I don't not, know. You know, I would imagine. Or did he uh, take off just in the last couple of years before his death? I think I mean, so. I mean, you know, his his great hit was uh, released after his death. Uh, okay. And yeah. so, um, uh, you know, I think he was on the rise, and that's that's really kind of the theme of Macaulay music. Is I think we as a school have brought acts to the school that are rising stars. Maybe we catch them right before they, they really take off. And I think that may be the case with uh, Otis Redding. So, you know, following Otis Redding is a pretty tough act today. Our students really didn't know that back then. But the following year, in uh, 1966, an incredible performer by the name of Major Lance performed. And I don't know if you're familiar with his music, but one of his songs is, and it just goes on and on. That's a great song. Yeah. And then the year after he performed, Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs performed. And his claim to fame was he wrote and performed the song Stay. That incredible song that, you know, everybody from, uh, gosh, Jackson Brown to the Four Seasons oh, yeah. have performed. And it was also part of the soundtrack in the movie Dirty Dancing. So here's this. <laughs> This great songwriter and performer right here, you know, performing these songs, uh, his song in particular, at Macaulay. Hey, 
I also saw in, in the pennant in 1966 a band called the Medallions played, and I looked them up, and they were no, they were known for making up just sort of crazy words in their lyrics, and they had one song where they kept talking about the pompatists of love, and Steve Miller was a big fan of this band out in Dallas, and and added that into his song The Joker later on. Yeah, I think so, a lot of those uh, early bands in the 60s, and I'm sure you've researched this. Uh, that came to Macaulay, they were all kind of that Carolina beach music. And some of those guys, uh, they were brought to Macaulay because many of the boarding students, they were just familiar with that. We had a lot of guys from Charlotte and, and living along the coast, and it was just, uh, it was just music they were familiar with, and they somehow had the connections to bring it over here. But Yeah, uh, yeah I saw one band in the pennant from, uh, from Myrtle Beach, and... Uh, I kind of looked them up and couldn't really find much about them, but I'm assuming that was a Carolina, you know, kind of, you know, shagging music. Uh, yeah, I think and, one of the bands was a group called the Catalinas. And, uh, sounds like a beach music. Yeah, band. yeah. And then another band that performed, I want to say in 63, it was a group actually from Chattanooga called the Vibatones. And they had a song that I thought was really cool. It's called Rockin'. Chattanooga tonight and so so there was a lot of cool fun music back then and again I think Macaulay was kind of ahead of the curve but uh, but that's you know that's that's a great backstory well I think that's definitely true with you know we were talking about Luke Bryan and uh, you know you know I helped put together most of the 20 you know Wintersent shows and um, you know a lot of the bands that we got for Wintersend were you know, they had maybe, maybe had one big song, and then they went on to bigger things, I mean, in a lot of cases at least. And that was definitely the case with Luke Bryan, because basically he had one song, which was all my friends say. And so we, a typical Winterson band from 1989 to 2008, you know, the school was going to end up paying just to the artist, would be a, about a $15,000 guarantee to get uh, a somebody that basically had one song that was out and on the way up and typically an artist like that's going to either cost 12 5 15,000 so that's what i think it was 15,000 that we paid luke bryan to come in and obviously to get luke bryan to do a show now you're talking at least <laughs> half a million at least hmm. um, to get him to come do a show although his so. manager is a macaulay graduate right i think manager? jay williams is a, Books him for, oh, yeah, I, I could be wrong on that, but I think he does. Even Jay could pull a lot of strings, but I don't think we can get him we for could come up again. with that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, Jay, if you're listening, you know, hey. <laughs> hey, let's if we if we could for a second, let's go even further back. And Duke, I, with you being the historian of the group here, uh, go back to the beginning. I mean, how does something like this start at a school like Macaulay? I mean, it goes way back, and maybe you could take a look at that, and then some of the some of the bands or acts that came through back then. Yeah, it, you know, if you go back and, and, and the pennant is, is, one of, is really the great source for kind of documenting the school year, the pennant and the tornado. But in the pennant, it, you know, it all, it all starts with dances, you know, the music at dances. And really up through the, the late 60s and early 70s, any, any musical act that came here that wasn't homegrown, that wasn't students or wasn't the Mac- Macaulay you know, orchestra or something, um, any, any music that came here from, from off campus was for a dance. 
And it's, you know, what's striking, mm -hmm. and going back and looking at the, even the 1910, 1911, 1912 penance, mm -hmm. those earliest penance, is how much, there's not necessarily like, here's, the, here's what happened at this dance, but there's a lot of sort of banter, and the, they did these calendars where they'd talk about what happened, and people would recollect things, and there was a lot of conversation about dances, and interestingly, if you look at the advertisements, those old pennants had advertisements in them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in all of them from the 19 teens up really through the war years, World War II, uh, there were one or two dance schools advertised, like, hey, come here and learn how to dance, right? Because you're dancing, you know, it's not, uh, it's yeah. not the, it's funny, you know, in the 1960s or 70s, uh, one of the headmasters said, you know, you guys look like you're doing a rain dance and the Tennessee River's <laughs> already kind of flooded. So, you know, this was when people were doing more formal ballroom type dancing, really. So there's that. And then another interesting thing that you see in some of those early advertisements are the early ads for Victrolas. You know, when, when people start having easier access, of course, recorded music had been around in some form for a while, but it's cheaper, you know, in the 19-teens and 20s. And they're always advertised as, you can dance at home to the music of your choosing. <laughs> so there's a lot of conversation around dances. And, and I would say that from the, the teens through the 20s, it's the, the bands that play are always described as orchestras. And then in the 20s, you start to see some references to jazzier stuff and some faculty members being offended by that. Um, so, you know, and, and really, uh, you know, you have that kind of big band music that evolves in the, in the 30s and 40s. And, and basically, that's what the music was here that they were dancing to up until you know, the 50s and early 60s. And uh, what I saw was the very first reference to something that would look like rock and roll <laughs> was the Vivitone, the Vivitones. Mm -hmm. And that was at one of the early, what they called barn dances. It seemed like when I when I was doing some research on this that, uh, and you had mentioned this earlier that uh, the school kind of produced its own music in some ways, and often it'd be student bands. And uh, one of the most uh, notable student bands was the Dismembered Tennesseans, and maybe you could share a little bit about them and kind of their their rise to uh, kind of incredible heights through the years. Yeah, well, I'll just say real quickly that, um, you know, that that group was founded by, of course, Fletcher Bright, who, um, who, who passed away just a few years ago. That band started, and my guess is they, you know, they, they may have played in some form at one of those barn dances, but they definitely, um, he, he was interested in all kinds of music, including this boogie-woogie sort of jazz piano stuff. But I know they formed at Macaulay. Several of them went to Davidson College together and continued playing music at Davidson. And then, of course, they came back to Chattanooga. Several of them did and had this incredibly long career uh, in playing bluegrass music here, but also all over the place at festivals. 
And one of the things that I didn't really know until um, I dug into this a little bit and I talked to Mr. Bright about this a little bit was he was a luminary in the bluegrass world. I mean, he knew everyone and was uh, known for his incredible generosity. I guess he had a private plane and he would fly people around to festivals, you know, musicians who needed to get from point A to point B um, and was just generally respected as, as not only a musician but as a fan of, of the music. Um, so, yeah, and you know, now his legacy lives on in uh, the, what is it, the Three Sisters Bluegrass Festival that, that, that happens here usually uh, in the fall. Moving, moving forward from the bluegrass music provided by the dismembered Tennesseans, uh, Macaulay's it's continued to have bluegrass music and folk music on campus, and and I think back to, uh, gosh, back back in the days when I was a student here, we had John Hartford perform at Macaulay. You know, just the kind of the the Mississippi River folk music. Uh, and then one performer was a gentleman by the name of Norman Blake. Just an incredible uh, guitarist, fiddler. Uh, he was born in Chattanooga, grew up in Sulphur Springs, Alabama. He learned how to play musical instruments at the age of 11. He dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to become a professional. But he was here on campus. And you know his style is American folk music, uh, he toured with Johnny Cash for 10 years. He played with Chris Christofferson. He played on Bob Dylan's National Skyline. Absolutely, yeah. and he played on Joan Baez's hit, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. I didn't realize it, but he was on the soundtrack for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which won a Grammy for Album of the Year. Mm -hmm. So here's this guy from Rising Fawn, Chattanooga, Sulphur Springs, right here in the middle of our campus performing in the chapel, and again, I'm guys, had no idea of the incredible. Yeah, and that, that actually jogs my memory because when I was a student here, John Hartford played uh, the, the old fiddler. Uh, yeah. And, um, and he's, of course, you know, a huge a, a giant in folk and bluegrass kind of music. And finally, one last folk performer to uh, visit Macaulay was Odetta. So, wait a minute. Odetta is the guitarist she's the folk the, singer yeah the kind of gospel singing rock and roll guitarist is that she's, who this is the, dude she's the voice of the civil rights movement there exactly. you go the, yeah i had no idea that she played yeah here. and yeah. dr dr martin luther king called odetta the queen of american folk music yeah. i mean mm -hmm. she was huge and so here she is she spent about a day here yeah uh singing and meeting with students and she faculty. She rocked, man. I've seen videos of her. I mean, she was getting after it. Um, I mean, it's one of those acts where as soon as they come up on stage, you're like, you know, the students don't really know what, what they're in for. And, and if you told them what they were going to be seeing, most of them would be like, oh, I'm not interested. Please tell me they got it and got into but it. But yeah. that's what I'm going to tell you. 
they were inspired and they got it and um, they appreciated it. So. And how old was she at this point? Had to be up there. I'd say. He's got the whole world in his hand. He got the great big world in his hand. He got the whole world in his hand. He got the whole world in his hand. He got the wind and the rain right in his hand. He got the stars and the moon in his hand. He got the wind and the rain in his hand. He got the whole world in his hand. So that's the legendary Odetta who performed in Macaulay in the 1990s. You're listening to Stories from the Ridge, which is a podcast series from Macaulay School. I'm Steve Hearn, and if you have any memories about musical performances at Macaulay, We'd love to hear them, so send us a note. Uh, you can send it via info at macaulay.org. Now, after a short break, John Marcellus, Duke Ritchie, and I will share a few more details about performers who have visited the Ridge. And we'll share some funny stories about buses on fire, on-stage breakups, and even a request for prune juice. In his hand, he got a you and me, sister. In his hand, he got a you and me, brother. In his hand, he got the whole world in his hand. Well, he got everybody. Why don't we go ahead and just kind of fast forward a little bit and move into the, uh, the late 80s and early 90s when we really started to see uh, the music energy at Macaulay build. And... Uh, and there were some incredible acts that came to campus then. John, why don't you kind of, at the beginning, who were some of those groups? Yeah. And well, I, th- I thought I would, you know, I would just highlight a few and feel free to chime in uh, if you have any comments about them. But, it's, you know, it started off, you know, uh, with the very first Winterson concert in uh, 1989. And that was the Bodines, who have been around uh, they're from Milwaukee. They've been around. They're still making music 30 years later. And um, they, of course, played in Davenport. And their claim to fame was um, that their one of their songs was used as the theme song for Party of Five, which is Closer to Free. And um, I'm not going to sing it, but I'm sure <laughs> most people listening out there, you know, I'll be there for you. You know that song. Oh, yeah. Do you, wanna, does, you know it, dude. Yeah, but I can't sing worth it. I'll the be song. there for you. Da, that's the boat right there. Yeah. Isn't that right? But yeah, John, but did they also have a big hit called like "She's a Runaway" or something like yeah, that? Yeah, "Runaway." Yeah. yeah, that's another one of their big hits. So, um, anyways, that was the very first one, um, and probably you know uh, the next huge highlight would be the fourth one, which was widespread, of course, and. Uh, I mean, like you said, I mean, Widespread will play, you know, they'll do December 30th, 31st, January 1st at the Fox and sell the place out. You know, they'll oh, they play, you know, they'll play, they'll headline Bonnaroo. They'll, they'll sell out three nights at Red Rocks. and Denver. Right, exactly. So like you said earlier, that was, that was they're, pretty they're, amazing. They're huge and they're, you know, the it, it's interesting for me as someone who grew up loving that band to realize that basically now with widespread panic we are where you know like Grateful Dead fans were in the 90s you know like as far as their age um, I mean they've been at this since the 80s they've been at this for 
you know, 40 That's years. Um, that show, by the way, mm -hmm. for anybody listening to this who's a, a widespread Panic fan, you probably know this, but for those of you who don't, there's a website called Panic Stream where they've uploaded many of their shows, and there's actually a full recording of that entire show from the gym uh, on Panic Stream, and it's a soundboard quality show, and it's an amazing show. Mm -hmm. um, they, they actually did something that is incredibly rare, of course, which is they played one of their great now one of their now great songs they played it for the very first time at macaulay a song called rebirtha they introduced it uh, to an audience and and so it was an instrumental and of course now it has lyrics but it's funny if you listen to the show you can hear the the lead singer john bell who's known as jb when they're playing this song he starts doing what fans of the band know is what's called a JB rap, where he just starts making stuff up, and he's trying to find some lyrics for this song. And it's so funny because these are not these lyrics are not in the final recorded version of the song, but he keeps going, "Got a sleepy dog, sleepy dog," and he keeps talking about a sleepy dog. And I was just I, I listened to this show for the first time a couple of years ago and was just cracking up. But a little backstory on this, Peter Jackson, who's class of 90 at Macaulay, there have been two Macaulay graduates who were sort of legendary members of the crew of Widespread Panic. Peter Jackson was their drum tech and then their production manager. And Sam Holt, who when he was at Macaulay was known as Sam Swan, who's an incredible guitarist, an incredible musician who has his own band now, uh, was their guitar tech for a long time. But I called Peter the other day because I wanted to ask him about this and he of course he was already at Davidson by the time the show came here um, but I said Peter is it a normal thing for them to to break out a new song on an audience that they're not worried about messing up in front of like maybe some high school kids right, who, right. and he goes no 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 he goes they just they they were moved by the moment and just wanted to you know play that song they've wow. been obviously talking about it working on it and uh, so it's pretty cool, and you can listen to that show. It's a great show. Well, I skipped over one that was uh, actually the second Winter's End. Winter's End 2 in 1990 was a band that probably a lot of people out there listening absolutely love, and they still are performing today, which is Driving and Crying. Um, you know, I was playing, uh, you know, currently I do music and the PA for varsity basketball, and so I played a Driving and Crying song during a timeout, and so Rock Evans is one of the assistant coaches, and he came out of the time and he says, give us some more driving and crying. And I was like, wow, I'm surprised Rock really knows that. But Rock is class of 1990, which is when this concert was, so it resonates now. But I mean, driving and crying is um, huge. I mean, they're in the, you know, the Georgia Music Hall of Fame, um, and they've just got a lot of great songs that, that you know, people of our time Oh, really they were, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, it, it's interesting to me, and you know, of course I always think like a historian, but it's interesting to me that in the, you know, in the late 80s, when you're, you know, roughly less than a decade, but getting close to a decade out from that sort of explosion of what, what might be called New Southern Rock that was led, that came out of Athens with the B-52s mm -hmm. and R.E.M., um, that that the sort of college band, for, for lack of a better word, maybe alternative rock, right. had exploded to the point where Macaulay students who were tuned in, it's kind of going back to the beach music thing back in the 60s, that these Macaulay kids from all over who maybe had older siblings or whatever, 
in the college towns or they just were kind of clued into the music were you know really longing to get some of these bands that they had heard about for a few years here yeah. at campus it's amazing because i do remember i was in college and out of college when all this happened but the bodines and the smithereens yeah, was... and driving and crying and then I, I know you can talk about this but i know the connells were slated to play and something happened there were they were one of my favorite bands in college what happened they there? were supposed to be winners in eight so um, 1997 the connells were booked uh, to play here, one of yeah, one of your favorites, and um, the uh, the lead singer came down with a difficult bout of diverticulitis, and um, so they bailed. And this was only diverticulitis is not code for anything, right? I mean, the, the bus wasn't parked out back. And no, it's actually that's actually okay. a legit story. <laughs> so let's let's move forward one year into 1998, and. Tell us about the act that came to Macaulay that year. All right, so, you know, after what some would consider the most disappointing winter send ever in 1997, the Campus Entertainment Committee, the CEC, wanted to make sure that, that we rebounded and that they were able to regain their respect. And so, um, with the help of a family that really wanted to put on a show to, as a tribute to their sons, it's a, the Smith family from Kentucky, and they had uh, two Macaulay students, Jeremiah and Drew Smith, that were, they tragically um, died in a car accident over the previous summer. Their family helped us um, overcome our budgetary, you know, deficit to make sure that we would have enough to get uh, a huge act in here, which was George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. And um, so, yeah, they were the most expensive act that ever played at Winterson. It cost about $35,000 to get them to come in and it turned out to be by far the largest crowd. Uh, 1,300 people uh, were here for it, which the typical winter sand crowd was seven or 800. This was the only one over a thousand. And so it was, um, it was an unreal night. Um, tell, us, were, tell us about what were some of his requests to well, perform, wasn't there, weren't there several items that he requested in the yeah. contract? Well, one of the interesting things with all, I mean, because these acts are treating, you know, this event like a, a regular concert that they're, that they're um, you know, just it's like a regular part of their tour. And so typically they'll have a hospitality rider that gets kind of interesting um, with all kinds of unusual things that they want. And so... There have been several, you know, there have been a lot of unusual requests over a year that, you know, there'd be a full page of stuff on the hospitality rider that they want us to get. But a couple of the interesting ones from George Clinton were um, that he wanted um, vanilla Slim Fast, and then he <laughs> wanted two quarts of prune juice, not just one quart, two. He George, also wanted- George Stan Regular. <laughs> well, and typically we put, we, we do the hospitality for the bands in the student center or the game room. And, but George wanted his own place. He didn't want, you know, because they have, not only is it, was it the best attended show, the most expensive, but also the most people on stage. And in fact, we had to get, we had to rent a much, uh, the biggest stage we've ever had, because it was, I think it was a 40 by 60 foot stage um, that the CEC had to build, um, because they typically would have 15 people on stage from the background singers to all the different dancers and musicians. And, but anyways, George wanted his own space that was like, that no, basically he didn't want anyone to know where he was. 
And so while everyone else was in the student center, his personal hospitality space was the varsity swimming locker room, which <laughs> most students don't even know where that is. Um, what'd, you, what'd you have in there? <laughs> we, it was tough to, I mean, it was kind of tough to make the varsity swimming locker room a, a, hospi a hospitable place for a, a legendary performer like George Clinton. But, um, you know, and a lot of times, and George was even at the, George is still, is still going even today, but even then, George needed breaks. He needed his breaks. And so this was about, this was, and there was no opening act. This was the only winter center. There was no opening act. So they, they, their show was going for almost four hours. It started at eight and it didn't end until midnight. And George was, no, and Spencer McCauley is his favorite winter center show of all time, but he didn't realize that George was only on stage for about half the time. And, uh, but to this day, he talks about, uh, you know, whenever we, he would be at an admissions gathering, he would always talk about how, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is the really cool thing. Um, and George did, we got, you know, got to spend some time with Spencer and that was really fun. But, um, so, it, so, so what was in there? Did, did you have, what was in there with George? Yeah. Like, did he have a big lounge chair, a lazy boy chair, or how did you, we, John brought in a couple of ferns kind of give it some atmosphere i think we brought a couple of the nicest we brought you know a couple of the nicest desk chairs on campus oh, okay all right so it wasn't anything <laughs> they borrowed the duty chair from founders, it wasn't so. it wasn't like yeah i mean because it kind of caught us at the last minute because when they got here he was like well george needs his own space and we weren't really prepared it was the biggest stage um it was huge lighting grid um giant speaker stacks and you know, one of the ways that, that we were able to stay within budget on these shows is, you know, we have to bring in all the production. We have to bring in the stage, the lighting, the sound. And so, you know, we've used a lot of different companies over the years. Towards the end, we were using Solid Rock, which they're just right through the tunnel, right through the Missionary Ridge Tunnel. But the reason that, you know, and they, we would typically, the production would typically cost eight to $10,000 just to, get things ready to have a band come in and um, you know it started off in Davenport then it went to the wood floor um, to the main court for the middle uh, series and then towards the end we moved it downstairs into Walker form just because we could configure configure it better but the way that you know normally it would cost you know 15,000 for this production but they would let us get it for 8 to 10 if we would provide the labor so the students were and so there. The CEC would all day um, Saturday uh, would be setting up, you know, we would have to get there at like 7 a.m. on Saturday and they would be setting up a 40 by 60 foot stage piece by piece. And each piece weighs like 200 pounds just to move these stage pieces in. And so I was I'm always personally hoping that the show ends early because I know we have about four hours of work after the concert. And so. So when widespread or George Clinton is playing till midnight, that means the CEC is going to be taking down the concert until 4 a.m. And so yeah, George Clinton was even later than that. I would say it was 5 a.m. by the time we got the, the production taken down for George Clinton amazing. and loaded into the trucks.
that. Yeah, so Better Than Ezra was that next year, and yeah, they had a couple crazy things on their rider. Um, and was that the band that, um, where they broke up? Or no, that no, was, no. That was Sister Hazel. That was a couple years yeah. later. Yeah. So let's do a kind of a, a flash through some of the final few bands that played that that really were significant that are memorable. Right. It, and I'll just highlight a few because there there are a few um, there's a few that have funny stories to go with them. Um, you know, Winter Sand Eleven. You had uh, was a band called Tonic, and um, they were. That was a great show. That was in 2000. The only real noteworthy thing about that show is that, um, you know, we every year to help, you know, raise funds to help pay for this concert, we'll do a, uh, CEC would do a T-shirt for the show. And um, so normally, the you know, the band's name is always on it. And in this case, it was a little bigger than usual. It was actually giant on the back of the shirt. <laughs> and um, the tour manager for Tonic was... A little bit concerned that they hadn't really been consulted about this t-shirt and um, but luckily we had enough t-shirts left over that we provided the band and everyone along with the band as many shirts as they wanted and they were they were happy um, in uh, 2001 winners and 12 was sister hazel um, which the interesting story about them is this was probably the only Winterson show that actually was referenced on MTV um, because and it's because during the show it happened to be the drummer's birthday and so so, so what was said on MTV well I'll get to that so yeah is that well it's about their breakup it's about their breakup so anyways it was the drummer's birthday and so some of the some of their the their their uh, touring crew decided it would be funny to for his birthday to give him a nice shaving cream pie in the face but they decided to do it right in the middle of a song. And so he's trying to play the song and they could run up on stage and hit him in the face with a pie. But you know, if it was whipped cream, it might've been all right, it was shaving cream. So he couldn't see, he's trying to play the song. Oh man. And he was hot. And so, you know, he was hot the rest of the show. And then after the show, they're in the student center, you know, big, huge argument. Um, he just, you know, he said it was no, not very respectful. You know, it could have damaged his eyes. And it turned into a huge argument, and and they just said, "That's it. I'm, we're done. We're done. This is it. It's over." And so by the end of the night, they had actually broken up. Oh man! Um, yeah. And so the next day on MTV, they talked about how this just in last night at a at a private function, uh, the band Sister Hazel uh, has reportedly broken up, and um, it only lasted for a few days, and they got back together, but. It, that's a it happy ending. On yeah. it, it was a happy ending, yeah. but it was it did get mentioned on MTV. You know, they didn't mention Macaulay. It was a private function, but um, that was an interesting story. Um, skipping ahead two more years to sixteen, you had a great, um, you know, a country artist in here, Pat Green, Duke. I'm sure you're, I'm sure you have a certain affinity for Pat. I know Pat, Pat Green, Green, of course. I know Pat Green, uh, and. Uh, one of, the, one of the interesting things about that show was, you know, the bands will usually come in Saturday afternoon, they're doing sound check, and, uh, the, you know, the CEC, the hop committee, they always love seeing the tour buses roll in, because it's just like, everybody loves a tour bus, you know, and Pat Green had a nice tour bus, but it was kind of old, it was an older one, you know, he wasn't making Luke Bryan money, probably, <laughs> in, you know, in the mid-2000s, 
But um, during, while, so sound check was going on, and all of a sudden somebody runs in from outside and they're telling the tour manager, hey, uh, Pat's tour bus is on fire. <laughs> so the, the tour bus was actually on fire, smoke coming out of the back oh. of it. And so basically the, the sound check basically shut down and everybody went outside to see what was going on with the bus. And we ended up having to get the fire department in here to put the bus out. The back <laughs> of the bus had to be put out. And um, it was a trooper though, the bus still made it out of town that night after Pat Green finished up. Any of the kids that just loved music and being around, and maybe had aspirations of being being part of it, they got there as early as they could. You'd have kids that would wander into the building to listen, hear the sound check, and we wouldn't run them out, and they would listen to it. Um, and then after the show, you know, pe the kids would, you know, the, the Macaulay guys and, and people from other schools would hang around and, you know, take pictures, get autographs. Go and to in the fact, merch table. The merch table, yeah. and actually, of all the acts, the one, the one act that stayed around the most took pictures with every single person that wanted to pick. You know, a lot of times the bands are they've got to get ready going to the next night, yeah. the next city. But um, Luke Bryan stayed around. He probably stayed for an hour after the show, signing, taking photos with everybody, um, and uh, yeah, cool. probably long, of all twenty years, he probably stick around um, more than anybody. And that was, yeah, the kids loved it. Let's talk about the transition from kind of winter's end or winter's send. What is it, John? It, winter's end. Let's, let's talk about the transition from winter's send to today and what that path has looked like. Well, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of difficult things about putting on you know, the type concert that winter's end was. Um, and it's it was it's gotten more and more difficult for a lot of different reasons and you know one for one thing I think students they're more interested you know they're more interested in hearing someone that they're really familiar with um, now than they were than they were then and I think the reason that the only way that a concert with a pretty well-known artists or, or sometimes huge artists that comes in to be successful is for students to treat the event kind of like a Chattanooga would treat Riverbend which is you might t talk to your friends like hey let's let's get in the car and go to Riverbend all right let's go who's playing at Riverbend tonight I don't know we're going to Riverbend you know and that's kind of the way Riverbend that's kind of the way Winterson was for all those years I mean could everyone that went to see George Clinton name a George Clinton song? Very few people probably could. Could, it, could a lot of people name uh, a widespread song? You know, probably not that many could. But everybody went because it was something cool that Macaulay was doing. And I, and I will, I would say that there's, I would say there's no school in the country that has had, you know, the musical kind of history that Macaulay has as far as being from all the way back in to the early days to Winterson as far as having all these great acts. Otis Redding to yeah. Luke Bryan, right, yeah. I mean, I'd be surprised if there was a, a school that's had artists like Otis Redding and George Clinton and Luke Bryan and many others on their campuses. But unfortunately, you know, towards the end, people were more, they weren't um, going just because it was Winterson. 
you know, they were only going if they liked country music or if they liked um, jam bands or, or whatever type of artist was coming there towards the end. And so in the end, there just wasn't enough, you know, we weren't having enough attendance and ticket sales to justify it. And the way it kind of it transitioned into what we've done for the last 12 years, which is called GPS Macaulay Got Talent. Right. And I think, and that was hugely popular when it started and it's still popular today. And I think part of it is because they're going to see, they're not going to see a band they're familiar with that's making millions of dollars, but they're going to see students that they know and their friends that they're familiar with. And so it's not so much about the performance, but it's about who's performing. As soon the, the year Winterson ended, GPS Macaulay Got Talent started, and it's been going ever since. But um, I know there was another, there has been a new entry into the uh, the Macaulay Music Festival. Um, Ridge you know, Fest. Yeah, right. and Ridge Fest. So. Ridge Fest started, or, or happened in 2019. It was planned for 2020, but because of COVID, it didn't happen, of course. But... Uh, it, it was started by a couple of students, uh, one of whom, Briggs McElwee, was in my Southern Rock T-Term class, and we met with Henry Glasscock and Jay Williams, both Macaulay graduates who work at William Morris in Nashville and who book some of the biggest names in country music. And uh, they were really inspired by the stories that these guys told about their involvement mm -hmm. with, uh, with music and booking talent uh, in college. And uh, they thought, wouldn't it be really cool to try to find some bands that we like or that are up and coming bands and see if they'll come to Macaulay. And they reached out to this band, Mo Lauda and the Humble, right. And then, the, but it was kind of a, a they, they were the headliner and then some student bands played before right. it. Um, but it was fun, it was a fun night. And what you said about Luke Bryan reminded me of that because the band hung around quite a bit after the show and, and took photographs and sold t-shirts and so forth with the fans. Well, this has been, so much fun just to hear these stories. I know for those in our audience who are listening, there are probably thousands of stories that we haven't heard and might be interesting for us to hear. Uh, so we invite you to check in with us. And uh, kind of reflecting on all of these different stories, it's pretty amazing again when you can go from, gosh, the dismembered Tennessee ends to Luke Bryan and just see all of the stars that glitter all the way up through that chain. And, uh, and it's also pretty amazing that we have had two performers who were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So here's, here's Macaulay, here's the music. John, you played an incredible role in that. Uh, and Dukes, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Sorry. And uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>